If you have your Bibles, uh, go ahead and find Acts uh, chapter 4. That's where we're going to hang out, and you'll be ready when the time comes for us to get there. Uh, Acts chapter 4, uh, verses 32 and following. And as you find that, I want to do a little exercise with you. In just a moment, not yet, but in just a moment, I'm going to show you a picture um, but my hope is that you will not respond verbally to it, um, and so don't shout out who it is or anything like that, because I'm going to ask you to show by hands uh, if you know who is in the picture, and then I'll describe who the person is, and, and hopefully you'll see the connection to where we're headed today. Uh, can we play by those rules? Can we, can we raise our hands and not just shout it out? Fair enough. Um, so go ahead and show that picture. How, how many of you know who this person is? All right, just by show of hands. All right. Uh, this, is, this is Jimmy. I wish Jimmy was a dear friend, uh, but Jimmy is not yet a dear friend. may never be. Uh, Jimmy is better known as Mr. Beast. Uh, how many have heard the name Mr. Beast before? All right, even more people. Mr. Beast, if you don't know him, he is the, uh, the largest individual YouTube channel. Uh, he owns and operates the largest YouTube channel in the world. Um, there are groups that own larger channels, but as far as the individual, Mr. Beast owns the biggest 130 million subscribers uh, for Mr. Beast's main channel. Uh, it wasn't always that way for him, though. In fact, I was reading part of a book called um, Your Future Self, how choices we make today can affect us in the future, and we should make decisions today with the future in mind. And it, it starts with the story of Jimmy and how Jimmy was in high school and recorded a series of videos to his future self about how he wanted to make a difference how he wanted to be a great YouTube uh, channel, how he wanted to make a difference in the world. And slowly that grew and developed to 130 million subscribers. Uh, and now he's moved on from what started his channel primarily were these stunts he would do with friends, pranks he would do. Um, they, would, they would have a series of prizes they would give away. There'd be punishments involved in some competitions. So now the bulk of Mr. Beast videos have to do with being generous in some way. In fact, yesterday... Mr. Beast on the main channel released a video that within 14 hours by 6.30 this morning had already been viewed by 24 million people. That's, that's, that's almost 2 million people per hour. And you know what the substance or the, the subject of that video was? It was generosity. It was giving something away. He had done some research and he learned that in our world that about half of all cases of people that are considered legally blind is that there's a problem with the lens in their eye. And with a 10-minute procedure, uh, that lens can be replaced and people can see. And so Mr. Beast paid, personally paid, for 1,000 people around the world to have that procedure done. And so this little eight-minute video chronicles the stories of these 1,000 people from Kenya to Namibia to India to the United States of America where people who were blind can now see. What an incredible impact. And Mr. Beast is not ashamed. He talks about how his desire is to inspire generosity in other people. And so now he uses his position, he uses his wealth, he uses what he possesses to make a difference in the lives of other people. And so one of the questions that I ask myself, one of the questions I'm going to ask you is, do we have to have a million subscribers to be generous and make a profound impact? Do we have to have a YouTube channel? Do we have to have millions of dollars at our disposal to be generous people? And I think you know the answer to that is the answer is no. We can experience and we can extend revolutionary generosity without having millions of subscribers, without having a YouTube channel, without having millions of dollars. 
And what I want to explore in Acts chapter 4 today, verses 32 to 35, and we'll look at the greater context after that, is that it shows us how we can be revolutionary in our generosity, in particular as disciples of Jesus. We're looking at how to pursue Jesus. How do we become like him? How do we intentionally and decisively take action to move towards him, to, to live as he would want us to live? We've looked at how reading the word and, and, and following his words and his truth are a huge part of that. Prayer is a part of that. Serving is a part of that. But a big part of pursuing Jesus is that he shapes us to be generous people, not just casual generous people, but people known by our revolutionary generosity, that how we spend not just our wealth, but our time, our energy, our words, can make a difference in the lives of many people and have a profound impact. So maybe here's another question for you. Would you, as you take an honest assessment of yourself, would you consider yourself to be a generous person? I know it's a difficult question. Uh, I know Jeremiah tells us that our hearts can be deceptive uh, above all things. And so maybe if you think about the people that know you the most, would they say, that you're a generous person. And maybe let's take it to the, the next level. Would God who knows your heart say she is or he is a generous person? How can we become people of revolutionary generosity as we pursue Jesus? Uh, let's go to Acts chapter four. I'm gonna read Acts chapter four, verses 32 to 35. I'm gonna linger there for most of the message and then we'll look at what follows in two examples that are given. Verse 32. Actually, I'm gonna pray before we read this. Just ask God to stir in our hearts what he wants us to hear today. Uh, Father, I pray that as uh, we read your word, that we would know that these are your words, that these are your truth, that it's your spirit who inspired Luke to write them down, and it's your spirit that will write them on our hearts. And so, God, may we have ears to hear. Uh, give us eyes to see. Help us see how we can be people of revolutionary generosity. Amen. Verse 32, all the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there was no needy person among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone who had need. In multiple ways, we see revolutionary generosity on display in these verses. You can start in verse 32. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything that they had. It's a picture of a community committed to looking out for one another and sharing what they have. Uh, you may recall these words are pretty familiar to Acts chapter 2, verse 44 where Luke highlights the very same thing, that the community was together and they shared. Verse 44 of Acts 2 says, all the believers were together and had everything in common. Verse 45, they sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Um, there are people known for their giving, for their generosity. 
But even as we read into verses 33 and 34, we see it again. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all, verse 34, that there was no needy person among them. No needy person uh, among the community of faith. Uh, If you were hearing this uh, for the first time, maybe you're Theophilus, the early recipient or the greater body of the church, you likely would be taken back to another part of scripture, Deuteronomy chapter 14, where God says there should be no poor among you, that it's up to the community of Israel to care for the people, to give generously to the people to make sure that everyone's needs are provided for. And here again, God's people are doing that very thing. And as we move from verse 34 to 35, here's the way it was exhibited. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. There are people going off and selling their property, uh, selling their homes and saying, you know what, apostles, uh, Peter, here's, here's what we have. John, here's what we have. James, here's what we have. Just use it to help people. Just use it to make a difference. It's, again, a picture of revolutionary generosity. We see that one of the distinguishing marks of the early church is that they were characterized by revolutionary generosity. I think, again, it gives us a chance to pause and ask this question. It's a question I've been asking throughout the week. Is a distinguishing mark of my life that it's characterized by revolutionary generosity? Is a distinguishing mark of your life that it's characterized by revolutionary generosity? You say, well, Craig, how, how can I be revolutionary in my generosity? How can I do things that God would want me to do well, the, the, the example is here. The, the, the qualities of what it looks like to be a revolutionary, generous giver are present in verses 32 to 35. We'll just start in verse 32 again. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything that they had. If you want to be a revolutionary, uh, revolutionarily, is that even the right word? If you want to be revolutionary in your generosity, um, it begins by seeing that God is the rightful owner of everything. I love what it says in verse 32. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything that they had. They didn't look to what they had as being theirs. Now, some have used this as evidence uh, to suggest in chapter 2, verse 44, or chapter 4, verse 32, that that God is all about socialism and communism. Uh, That is not the case. Socialism doesn't show up here. Communism doesn't show up here. Socialism and communism are based on a belief that what's yours is everyone's. But following Jesus is based upon the premise that's what mine is actually God's and I can use it to make a difference in the lives of other people. We begin to be revolutionary in our generosity by recognizing that God is the owner of everything. And this is echoed throughout scripture. Um, uh, We could go to Psalm chapter 24, verse one. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, including the people that dwell within. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. We, we could go to First Chronicles chapter 29. Um, I've preached from this passage before when we've talked about generosity and God owning it all. Here's what David prays uh, as gifts from the temple have been collected. Uh, you may recall David, uh, this great king of Israel, because of some decisions in his life, does not get to be the one that oversees the building of the temple. His son Solomon will do that. But David got to oversee the collection of things for the temple. And when the people of God respond in such a way that they have so much, here's what David prays, 1 Chronicles chapter 29. 
But who am I, this is verse 14, and who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? Everything comes from you, and we have given you only what comes from your hand. David acknowledges that everything that I have ultimately has come from you. Everything we've given comes from you. We could fast forward to Paul's letter to Timothy. And here's what he encourages Timothy and the Ephesian believers with. Verse 17, he says, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, to be generous and willing to share. Again, if we're going to be revolutionary in our generosity, it starts by understanding that what I have is not mine. It belongs to him. It goes for our wealth, it goes for our energy, it goes for our time, it goes for our talents, it goes for our abilities, it goes for our possessions. Everything that we have comes from God. If you want to be revolutionary in your generosity, you have to start there. And I know that the enemy wants to convince you that, that you have worked for it, it's your efforts, it's your knowledge, it's your job, it's your inheritance, but ultimately all of it comes from God. As we move from verse 32 into verse 33 and 34, we see something else. Not only does revolutionary generosity begin by recognizing that God owns it all, but revolutionary generosity is fueled by the mission of God and the power of God. Verse 33, with great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there was no needy person among them. What fuels the revolutionary generosity in the church? What fuels it is the people are aware of the mission of God. What is God's heart? What does God desire? What does God want? And knowing that fuels their gifts. We see the apostles testify. They testify to the resurrection of Jesus. They continue to preach. They continue to proclaim the resurrection of Jesus. This is just another way of saying they're continuing to stay faithful to preach and proclaim the gospel. The gospel is the good news of who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, what Jesus continues to do. And they continue to testify and proclaim that. By this point, they've been imprisoned. Uh, they, they've been falsely accused, and they keep proclaiming who Jesus is and what he has done. And that mission propels them forward in their generosity. Who is Jesus? He's God's son. He's God in flesh. What has Jesus done? He's come, he's lived, he's, he's overcome and resisted temptation, the same temptations that you and I face, and he's given his life, he's died, and he's risen again. He's resurrected from the grave. Why? So that those who will believe and those who would trust him can have life forevermore, not just when we die, but eternal life can begin today. And that's the gospel they're proclaiming, and that fuels the generosity, but it's not just the mission, not just being aware that this is what God wants in the world, this is what God stands for in the world, but, but, but it's also that the power of God fuels the mission. He says, God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all. Uh, we, we've journeyed through the first couple chapters of Acts um, almost in completion already in our, in our last three or four months of teaching through the book. You may recall that in Acts chapter one, Jesus promises something. He promises that as the disciples wait, they'll receive a gift. Do you remember what that gift is? The Spirit. 
that the Holy Spirit will come. Do you remember what happens in Acts chapter two? The Holy Spirit descends upon his people. Peter then preaches a sermon. He says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Like the evidence of God's grace powerfully at work in the, the followers of Jesus, it's the Spirit of God. And what, what fuels the generosity is God's Spirit at work in them. If you and I are going to uh, extend and experience revolutionary generosity, it will be because we recognize God as the rightful owner of everything, but also because his mission compels us to give. We see the need around us for people to know him. We see the need around us with people around us to be fed, to be rescued, to be set free. And it will come because the spirit of God helps us stay the course. Because I don't know about you, but I live in a world where there are temptations all around me where there are things that grab hold of my heart and tempt me to think that they might bring me value and they might bring me worth and they might bring me joy when God alone provides those things. I like the picture of fuel uh, for a moment because uh, when you think about fuel, we know that fuel is necessary uh, for our furnace to work. It's been cold. Uh, if you have a snowblower for your snowblower to work, or if you're like me, you have a snow shovel, fuel is still necessary. If, if I don't eat breakfast and I don't have calories, I'm probably not gonna shovel for very long. Uh, you know it's necessary for your car to go, whether that's you have a battery-powered car or you have a gas-powered car or a diesel-powered car. You know that fuel is necessary to keep something going. You also know that the wrong type of fuel can cause lasting damage and, and keep that machine from working well. Uh, I think I've shared the story here before. We have a family friend who was working for a company. Uh, he was a, a traveling salesman, would tow forklifts and skid loaders all over the Southeast United States, and he did it in a company truck. And that company truck uh, required a certain type of fuel. I can't remember if it required diesel or unleaded, uh, but in a hurry, uh, that gentleman, our family friend, filled that truck with the wrong type of fuel. And guess what? That truck ran for about 15 minutes and got to, to a certain part of the highway and it just stopped. It ran out of fuel, it didn't have the right type of fuel. And so I like this picture for how the mission of God and the power of God fuels our generosity because we can be generous, but we can do so with the wrong fuel. Uh, sometimes uh, we'll be generous because other people are watching. Sometimes we'll be generous because we feel like we have to. Sometimes we'll be generous simply because we were moved emotionally. But those things in time will wane and their power will fade. The only renewable energy resource for generous lives is the mission of God and the power of the Spirit of God. And so will we be people who allow him to fuel that revolutionary generosity in us. Another final observation from this passage about how we can be revolutionary in our generosity. God owns it all. The mission of God and the power of God fuels the generosity. But to be revolutionary in generosity, I have to believe that we is more important than me. That we is more important than me. You see a desire for the community in this passage. The believers are one in heart and mind. They are together. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared what they had. There was no needy person among them. They're selling houses and land and giving it to the apostles who lead their community to distribute. The community is more important than the individual. 
Something we know about the culture of the East versus this side of the ocean is that they're far more communal. Oftentimes in the East, Africa, Europe, Asia, when someone receives something, one of their first thoughts is, how can this benefit the people around me? Whereas what's often the thought in our own country, aside from a transformed heart, is how does what I get benefit me? Just think about your first thoughts uh, when you got that birthday card and there was money in it. Oh, what can I do with this? What were the first thoughts when the wedding gifts came in? Or what's the first thought when you get the generous gift from a friend? Or what's the first thought when the tax return check comes? Oh, now, what can I do? Is what often takes place in homes across America. But if we're gonna be revolutionary generosity, the first thought has to be not just how will this, not, not will this benefit me, but how will this benefit we? We recognize ourselves as a part of the larger community. What we have is his. It's fueled by the mission, the power of God, and it's fueled by an understanding that it's not about me, but it's about we. If you and I will see him as the giver of all things, if we will see his mission and his purposes as number one, allow his spirit to convict us and guide us, if we'll look out to the community and not just ourselves, we will find that there are there's far more to help people in our world than we ever thought imaginable. Luke shifts his attention in verse 36 through chapter five, verse 11 to two examples. The example of someone in the community of faith that got it right and exhibited revolutionary generosity and the example of a couple that got it wrong. The easy one first, verses 36 and 37. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. So just what we've seen described in verses 32 to 35, Barnabas now does. He's compelled. He believes that what he has is not his own. He believes in the mission. He has the power of God within him. He knows the community is more important than the individual. And so what does he do? He says, okay, I'm gonna sell this piece of property, which many scholars believe was probably very rare for uh, Barnabas to even have property, probably had very little property. He was from Cyprus as a Levite. There had been rules previously that they couldn't own property. Maybe those didn't extend to Cyprus, but they believe that likely he had very little. And he sells it to give the proceeds to be given away. Contrast that with what happens with Ananias and Sapphira. Now, a man named Ananias, together with his wife, Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died, and great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened, and Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? 
listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. In great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. Something that's important to clarify. We see it in Peter's words in verses three and four. Ananias and Sapphira are not called to account. They are not rebuked for keeping some of the proceeds from their property or their home. What they're rebuked for is deceiving their community, deceiving the apostles, deceiving the spirit, ultimately lying to God because they were presenting what they had as though it was everything. See, see, see Ananias and Sapphira, they could have sold the property. Let's say they sold it for $10,000. They could have come to Peter and said, hey, Peter, we sold our property. Here's $6,000. And Peter would have said, is that all that you got? And they could have said, yep, we kept 4,000 back for ourselves. We're giving you six. We sold it for 10. But, but this is what we feel we need to keep and what we need to give away. And Peter says that would have been fine. But what they did was they said, no, what we gave is everything that we got. And that begins to help us see what was different. What was different between Barnabas and Ananias and Sapphira? Ananias and Sapphira were deceived. They were captivated. They were taken captive by the allure of the wealth and the enemy gained a foothold in their heart. In fact, Peter says that Satan filled them. We know that Satan is opposed to God's best. We know that Satan is crafty. The word of God tells us that he's the adversary of God. Peter tells us that he prowls around like a roaring lion looking for people to devour. We see in the Garden of Eden that he is opposed to God's best. The enemy does not want God's ways to win. And so he tempts Ananias and Sapphira. We don't know how it went down. We don't know if their intentions were pure. I, I tend to believe because of how the account unfolds that they see Barnabas. He gives it like, oh man, this is incredible. They're inspired. Many of us have been inspired by acts of generosity ourselves. And so they're like, okay, we'll sell our property and we'll give the proceeds. But something happened once they received those proceeds. Was it more than they had anticipated? We don't know. But something happens suddenly when they're holding all that money and they start to be filled with questions of, but what could we do with this? How could this benefit me? And somehow that got twisted in their hearts to say, okay, let's just tell the apostles that this is all that we got and we're gonna do our own thing. We know this was intentional um, uh, conspiring by Ananias and Sapphira. The words in verse two, it says, with his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself. Um, that word kept back uh, occurs another time in scripture. In the Old Testament, uh, the Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint, there's account, an account in Joshua chapter seven, verse one. Uh, the Israelites are fresh off their defeat of Jericho, that fortified city. They now are moving towards a much smaller city called Ai. And something happens. Instead of defeating the small city like they defeated the fortified city, the Israelites lose. Are you familiar with that story? The Israelites were told not to keep any of the things, any of the idols, any of the gold for themselves. And a man named Achan among the Israelites kept back for himself some of the gold and the silver and the idols of the people of the land. And because of that, he was punished. It led to the losing of the battle for Israel. 
And that's the same word that Luke uses here. Ananias and Sapphira conspired. They were deceptive. Somehow money became more important to them than the work of God. And while we can pick on Ananias and Sapphira, I think if we're honest, we should just pause. Because every single one of us has felt the temptation for money to provide for us only God can. We think that if I just had more, I'd be more. If I just had more, I'd be happy. If I just had more, I'd be protected. If I just had more, I'd be safe. If I just had more, I'd be enough. And those are only things that God himself can provide. And yet we will allow those lies to keep us from being generous and we'll just keep building up our kingdoms and making them greater, making them grander while around us people are hurting and people are suffering. And that's not the way of the kingdom of God. We're, to be called, we're called to be people of revolutionary generosity. Now you may ask the question, do I have to be like Mr. Beast again to be generous? And again, the answer is no. Generosity is not rooted in how much you have, but what you're willing to do with what you have. And so will we be men and women, whether we have much or we have little, who will be generous? Um, I have been so blessed to know people who have some great wealth, and I've seen them be generous. But I've also known people of great poverty who are exceedingly generous. I remember being in, um, uh, it's an area development project. It's called the Umzimvubu Area Development Project in the Eastern Cape of South Africa. We traveled there in the back of a Toyota pickup truck and people were living in dung mud huts. This is back in 2008, 2009. The AIDS epidemic was just ravaging the community. People had so little. We showed up to a worship service in what they would call a church building, but obviously nothing like this. And people who had very little, people who were walking miles a day for water, greet us and they serve us a meal they had spent, some of them, their whole daily wage on buying a bottle of Fanta Orange and a bottle of Coca-Cola to make sure that their guests had something great to drink. People had so little, were so generous. We've walked through villages and dirt paths littered with trash in Haiti only to have people come up and offer you something. Generosity does not require you to be rich. It's a posture of the heart. Well, I see that what God has given me is his for me to share. Will I be fueled by the mission and the power of God? Will I see that it's more about we than about me? And if we make those choices, God will use us to do incredible things. If the people of God would resolve to be revolutionary in their generosity, do you know that there would be way more than Lebanon Christian Church could ever spend on ministry? There would be way more than anybody our need could, anybody our community could ever have to satisfy their needs. People would be fed, people would be sheltered, people would, would have food, they would have, they'd have clothes. Do you know that wouldn't be just the case for the United States of America, it'd be the case for the world? But we have to resolve to be revolutionary in our generosity. And God will use that to make a difference. And listen, it's not just about money. You can be generous with your time, you can be generous with your energy, you can be generous with your ears. We have people starving for connection in our world. We just sit and be present with them and listen to them. We'll be generous with our, our speech. We'll be generous with our kindness. We'll be generous with encouragement. And how would that change the world? And we learn all of this from the first and most generous giver, and that's God himself. 
For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him, he would not perish but have everlasting life. God is generous. You can be generous no matter how much you have in your bank account, no matter how much your social security check shows in the corner, we can choose to see him as the owner of it all, fueled by his mission and his power and seeing we above me. Let's pray. God, we thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your truth. God, I pray that we would be inspired to be men and women, young and old, who live revolutionary, generous lives in our pursuit of you. And God, as we do, uh, may we see your kingdom come and your will be done in Lebanon and in Boone County in our world as it is in heaven. In your name we pray, amen. Mm -hmm.